This is the second week of our New Year's series called Making Sense of Jesus. Uh, the gist of the series is this. It's not always easy to make sense of Jesus, let alone to sense him in our everyday lives. Amidst the pressures we face, uh, the busy world we live in, the stuff that stays in the forefront of our attention, it's hard to sense Jesus' presence at all, uh, let alone to understand him. However, Jesus, he has made himself available to all of our senses. He's revealed himself to our sight and our taste, our smell, our touch, and our hearing. And in this series, we're exploring uh, how Jesus reveals himself to each of these senses. Last week, we began with the sense of sight. And if you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go online and, online and listen to it. Uh, this week, we're going to be digging into the sense of taste. And there's some decadence when it comes to the sense of taste. Uh, did you know we have... The average person has 10,000 taste buds, 10,000, and they're remade every two weeks. And so you can keep on tasting on for your whole life, 10,000 taste buds. Uh, there's a decadence to this, you know. Taste is bound up with eating. It's hard to, to separate the two, really. We can distinguish taste, you know, at least six, the, the scientists say, sweet, sour, salty, pungent, bitter, astringent, which I guess is broccoli, I don't know. Uh, but research is suggesting there's actually far more taste than this. But without taste, without these basic six, eating becomes something very different. Uh, many years ago, uh, my grandmother's best friend, when they were both alive, uh, she had a stroke. And she recovered, but she lost most of her sense of taste. Uh, and she told me that everything began to taste like sawdust. And as the years went on, she only ate to survive. And she took no enjoyment in it. She didn't look forward to it uh, without taste, eating was solely a function. And much of our taste is, is for enjoyment. God didn't have to make things taste good or bad or medium or taste like anything at all, yet he has. Because taste isn't just for our functional survival, uh, but it's for more than that. God uses the sense of taste to reveal himself to us. Think of Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Of course, I think this is metaphor. You know, like the psalmist isn't saying, like, walk up to God and lick him. Uh, or is he? Uh, the, the psalmist is suggesting uh, that God's goodness is experiential and decadent. You can taste it and you can see it. But I would also argue that Christ has literally fulfilled this psalm. He has done th so through communion, through the Lord's Supper, through the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's through the bread and through the wine that we can truly taste and see that the Lord is good. And that is why communion immediately became a central component of the Christian worship of the early church and has remained central throughout history. And some might even say it is the climax of Christian worship. And if we want to make sense of Jesus with our taste, then we have to make sense of communion. And in our passage today, Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, we'll be exploring what's now known as Christ's words of institution. This is where it all began. Uh, but just a quick disclaimer. Um, when preaching on communion, uh, you can't get around some heavy lifting. Uh, there's no quick or simple way to talk about it. If I was going to be really simple about it, I would say, receive it with faith and trust that Jesus is somehow in it because he commanded it. Like, that's as simple as I can get. But... You have to do some work. You have to do some heavy lifting to get to the substance of what is in this sacrament. Uh, 
I won't be able to get to all of the different views in church history over the past 2,000 years. I imagine Preston did that with perfection at the Equip and Build this morning, bread and wine. So if you have any questions at all about the history of communion, Preston is your man, and that talk will be available online. But here is the big idea I want to explore this morning. When we taste, when we taste what Jesus has done for us in communion, we see that the Lord is good. And by participating in communion, we proclaim his goodness to all. So in communion, we taste and we see the Lord's goodness. And by participating in it, we proclaim his goodness to all. So open your Bibles up with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to read verses 26 through 29. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take Eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Before we can really get into the heart of this passage, we need to look at three big things. The context, the offense, and sacraments. So first, the context. Verse 26, uh, Matthew writes, Now as they were eating. Now as they were eating. So we're jumping into uh, the middle of a scene. We're jumping into the middle of a moment. Uh, the disciples are likely observing a Passover meal with Jesus. And Passover was a time of remembrance. It was a time of remembering salvation, and in particular, remembering the exodus of how God had delivered his people out of slavery and redeemed them. And God brought judgment upon Egypt. We read about that in our first reading. And he instructed the people of Israel to sacrifice unblemished lambs and to take that blood and put it on their doorposts so that in the final plague, when he came in judgment on Israel, he would pass over them. His wrath would pass over them. There's obviously a lot more to it than that, but that's the gist of Passover. And year after year after year after centuries, it was remembered and it was celebrated. It was a celebration and remembering of how God saved them. But the sort of remembering they did. It wasn't just recalling something that happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. You know, when people of Israel offered lambs yet again during the Passover, they're reenacting the story. They made the past present. When they remembered the Passover and the Exodus, they were re-participating in it, not recreating it, but re-embodying it. The second big thing going on that we miss is offense. Verse 26 and 27, Jesus says, Take, eat, drink. Eat and drink. You know, this doesn't strike us as immediately offensive, but to ancient Jewish years, it's disgusting. I mean, Jesus is saying, eat and drink, but he, he's actually saying, eat my body, drink my blood. And this was unthinkable to the Jewish mindset. In fact, when Jesus began to allude to this in John 6, Many of his followers stopped following him because it was too offensive. It was too ludicrous. There was a command uh, in the scriptures. You don't drink blood, let alone eat anything with remnants of blood in it. And if you tasted blood, it certainly wasn't a way of encountering God. It was a way of disobeying God. And so it's so easy for us to become accustomed to the language of eat my flesh, drink my blood, 
that we don't hear the offense that it would have originally caused. But say someone offered you a drink, you know, it's a little murky red, and so you say, what is this? And you're like, well, it's my blood. <laughs> you're probably not going to drink it unless you're a vampire, and we should probably talk. Uh, or if they're like, well, it's Kool-Aid, it's red Kool-Aid, but I know this is a little weird, but could we just pretend it's my blood? I don't know. Like, you, maybe you would drink it. Like, it depends how close you are, you know, but... It's not surprising that people outside looking in at the Christian faith still accuse Christians of participating in human sacrifice, of being cannibals, even. People have a difficult time making sense of this practice and making sense of what Jesus said. Eat my body. Drink my blood. But this sort of staunch literalism misses everything Jesus is doing at his table. Jesus is instituting a sacrament. Which brings us to the third big thing we need to address. Sacraments. What is a sacrament? And this week and next, we're going to be looking at the two sacraments of the church, baptism and communion. We're beginning with communion, and so we need an understanding of sacraments. And for starters, sacraments are a mystery. We cannot fully understand their mechanics and inner workings. They are fundamentally mysterious. The Anglican Catechism defines sacraments this way. It's helpful. Uh, a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. You need to commit this to memory. So say it with me. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So now when someone asks you what a sacrament is, you can say that and still have no idea what you're saying. Uh, so congratulations. But you got it? This is the definition we're working with. So when it comes to communion, the sign, the outward and visible sign, is the bread and the wine. You can touch the bread. You can hold the cup. You can chew the bread. You can drink the wine. You can literally taste the signs. They're tactile and tangible, and they're outward and they're visible. But the bread and wine are a sign that signify a greater reality, the body and blood of Jesus. In other words, his death. So if you go back to the catechism, it teaches God gives us the sign as a means whereby we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. When it comes to communion, when we taste the visible signs, we receive the reality of the signs. We taste the bread and the wine, but we're receiving the invisible grace of Jesus' death. We also receive assurance at saying the benefits of his death are for us and given to us and are indeed ours. And so I'll state it in the simplest way that I can. As we taste communion, we deepen in the grace of the cross. It's a mystery. It's a beautiful mystery. But behind this mystery is a, a profound truth. God uses physical things to communicate salvation to humanity. He uses physical things to communicate salvation to humanity. The primary physical thing is Jesus Christ himself. As one scholar puts it, Jesus Christ is the quintessential sacrament. He is a visible sign of God's invisible grace. The next physical thing God uses to communicate salvation to us is the bread and wine. But why? Why use our taste buds? Why not leave Jesus on earth with a physical body that we can 
touch and see and feel and even lick if we want to taste it. You know, why leave us with bread and wine? Because taste is the most basic sense for our nourishment, and yet it's the most decadent sense for our enjoyment. Taste is the most basic sense for our nourishment. When infants are born, uh, their senses come alive in a new way. I've watched two children be born, so I figure I'm an expert. Julia might be a close second. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they see, uh, but not very well. You know, blurs, shapes, they say it might even be in black and white, bright lights. Their sense of touch is activated. They feel the air, the cold, the warmth. You know, they smell. We won't get into that. And, and, but what is remarkable is how their sense of taste is activated. I love this. Most doctors and midwives insist of taking you know, the, the, the naked newborn and placing them in between the mother's breasts and stomach so that the child can begin to root and squirm and find its way up uh, until it finds a nipple to latch on and taste for the first time. Every other sense is activated first, but none of those senses immediately nourish the child. It's the sense of taste that brings life and nourishment to this child. God, he leaves us with a physical sacrament that uses our sense of taste because taste is the most basic sense for our nourishment. Through what we taste, what we eat, what we drink, we're either nourished or malnourished. There's no middle. Communion, then, is God's way of breastfeeding us. Through communion, God provides us what we deeply need for survival while the rest of our senses are distracted by the external world. And like infants at communion, we're utterly dependent upon our provider. But unlike infants, we don't outgrow our need to nurse. Until Christ returns, until he establishes his kingdom, we root and we fret and we cry until we find our way to the nourishment in the bread and wine. The great reformer, John Calvin, puts it this way. The proper stance of the believer in partaking of the supper is not therefore to meditate on Christ's presence and sacrifice, but to receive it in faith as a child receives its mother's milk. Calvin goes on. Partakers of the sacrament may be understood not to receive it solely by imagination or understanding of mind, but to enjoy the thing itself as nourishment to eternal life. The sacraments engage our taste to nourish us, to nourish us in Christ's death. Yet God has also left us with a sacrament that engages taste the most decadent of our senses. I can tell you the exact date I had the best meal of my life. February 9th, 2012. Uh, Julia and I, we were celebrating our anniversary, and we just moved to Vancouver, and a friend suggested we go to Shambar in Gastown. And if you haven't been, go. Uh, and so we went, and I ordered the spiced rub duck breast with Okanagan herb goat cheese, roasted hazelnuts, ricotta noshi, and uh, sauce that was amazing. And that's an actual picture of it. Uh, I kid you not, I have had no greater meal before and no greater meal since. Like, my mouth was overwhelmed. I savored every bite. Like, I meticulously crafted every single bite to have each ingredient. I actually ate slow, which was a miracle in of itself. And friends, I'm telling you, I have been to the heavenly mountain. I have tasted the heavenly food. Like, I had had food before, and as you can tell, lots of it. Uh, but then I had food. 
taste. It can be decadent. We know this. And it can almost be transcendent. We can have these moments eating. And God knows this. And that's why he's given us bread and wine. It will nourish us, but it's also meant to lift us up into his presence and reality. But like infants, as Calvin suggests, we can only enter into this reality with faith. It's when we receive the sacraments with faith that they lift us up into the presence of Jesus. It's only by faith, by trust, that we receive the benefits of Christ's death. So with these three big things in mind, Passover, offense, sacraments, now we can start the sermon. So open up your Bibles with me again to Matthew 26, 26 through 29. You think I'm joking, but I'm not. Uh, we're going to look at two things, Participa participation and proclamation. And we're probably halfway, just in case you're panicking right now. Now, as they were eating a Passover meal, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and saying, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. During the meal, Jesus simply takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. And the disciples' imaginations would be on fire right now. These are the exact actions, the exact actions that Jesus uh, took when he multiplied the loaves for 5,000 people. Word for word, blessing, breaking, giving. Something big is about to happen in their right. But it starts with, as we've explored, a very shocking declaration. Take, eat, this is my body. And he takes the cup, he gives thanks, and he says, drink it, all of you. And then he explains what it means. This cup is my blood of the covenant. From beginning to end in the scriptures, God is a God of covenants. Covenant is the fundamental way in which God has revealed his faithfulness to us. A covenant, it's essentially a binding promise or a contract of sorts, or you can think of it like the ultimate pinky swear. In the ancient world, the covenant it was usually two parties. Agreements and terms were made. An animal was killed and split in two, and they walked through the animal together saying if either one of us breaks this covenant, let us be like this animal. And yet when God makes covenants with his people, he not only takes responsibility for his side of upholding the covenant, but also our side of upholding the covenant. So he says, if you break the covenant, let it be done so to me. Let me pay the consequences. And throughout history, we've always broken our side of the covenant. After the first Passover, God established a covenant with Israel in the Sinai wilderness. You know, the exact phrase that Jesus uses here, blood of the covenant, appears when this covenant was ratified. God graciously saved his people. He redeemed them. He brought them out to Sinai. And he says, this is what a relationship with me will look like. And Israel knew, okay, we have to be faithful to these words of God. And so, agreement to terms, sacrifices were made, blood was shed, the deal was done. But Israel's faithfulness was short-lived. Very, very short-lived. Only a matter of days, really. But God's faithfulness is never short-lived. He upholds the covenant. His promises 
were unbreakable. And so as Jesus explains the cup in his hands, he's establishing a covenant with us. He's fulfilling a promise, the promised new covenant. He goes on to say in verse 28, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We can't keep our end of the deal. We're never completely faithful to God. We may start out with good intentions. I want to follow Jesus. I want to do what he says. I want to figure this out. And for a while, we might even thrive. But then we start feeling conflicted. We want things on our own terms. We want to keep one foot in and one foot out. We want what we want, and we want a way to have what we want. And we become half faithful at best. And that's why we need a covenant of forgiveness. We can't keep our side of the deal. And the new covenant that Jesus is establishing on the cross, his blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's not cheap. It's expensive. It's not the blood of animals. It's the blood of Christ. And it's poured out to establish this new covenant. The prophet Ezekiel describes the new covenant this way. I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. The same way the prophet Isaiah says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Prophet Jeremiah heard God say, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And all of this is captured beautifully in Psalm 103.7. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The prophets, even the psalmists, they had visions and were told that this new covenant that will come will be fundamentally de defined by the removal of sin, so much so that God remembers the sins no more. And that is what Jesus came to establish. The new covenant that Jesus established is fundamentally defined by the forgiveness of our sin. The complete, utter removal of sin through a sacrifice offered once and for all time, and then it was finished. And those who enter into this new covenant, God remembers their sins no more. The writer Brendan Manning, he tells a story of a woman who had been having visions of Jesus. And the local archbishop finds out about this and goes to see her, because, you know, we can't have people having visions of Jesus after all. And uh, he says to her, have you been having visions of Jesus? And she says, yep. And uh, he sees she's not backing down on this. And so he says to her, here's what I want you to do. The next time you have a vision of Jesus, I want you to ask Jesus a question. She says, okay. I want you to ask Jesus what sins I confessed the last time I went to confession. And so she says, okay. So a little while later, he hears that she's having visions of Jesus again. So he heads down and uh, returns and he asks, so you, have you been having visions of Jesus? And she says, yeah, I've been having visions of Jesus. He says, well, did you remember? And she says, yeah, I remembered. And he, he then, she then took his hand in hers. And she said, I asked Jesus what sins you confessed last time you went to confession. And Jesus' exact words were, I don't remember. That's what the blood of the new covenant does. The broken body of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus, the cross of Christ, his death. What's the result? Forgiveness. 
forgiveness, vast forgiveness of our sins to the point that he can say, I don't remember your sins. They aren't held against us anymore. They aren't remembered anymore. And so when we celebrate communion, when we receive it with faith, we're participating in Christ's death. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We get to experience the benefits of his death. And so communion is the tangible and tactile, repeatable way that we experience the unbreakable forgiveness that was offered to us on the cross. And so when we taste the grain of bread, when we taste the sweetness of the wine or the grape juice, if you prefer, as we chew and swallow with faith, we're experiencing the benefits of Jesus' death but we are not being forgiven yet again. We're forgiven and we're experiencing a deepening of that reality again and again. And so if we're forgiven, absolutely forgiven, why do we need to do this at all? Why do we have to do this over and over again? God may not remember our sins, but we sure do. And that's why he invites us to confess them to one another, to him directly. This is why he invites us to his table because our sins have been forgiven and the only way we can grow and grow and grow in that reality is to come to him time and time again. We remember our sins and that's why he gave us the sacrament to help us enter into the truer unseen reality of forgiveness, the unbreakable forgiveness because of grace. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's free. It's for the taking. And so we receive communion not to be forgiven over and over again, but to grow in the depth of the reality that in Christ we're forgiven. And we receive the physical signs, bread and wine, but to grow in this invisible grace. And so if you're struggling to see Jesus in your day-in, day-out life, and I know many of us are, you can be guaranteed that your taste can make sense of him in communion. Because he gave us this sacrament. Jesus himself instituted it. And in Luke's gospel, he even says, do this in remembrance of me. He reveals himself to us through taste. He makes sense to us through taste. But when we celebrate communion in remembrance of Jesus, this isn't just recalling of events. It's the re-embodying of the past. It's the bringing into the present what Jesus has accomplished once and for all time on the cross. And so we can literally taste and see that the Lord is good. And we need this. We need this more than a good meal. We need this more than the best organic food that we can find. We need this deeply, as the scriptures teaches. Man does not live on bread alone, but the word of God. What we need is the nourishment that cannot be found anywhere but in Christ, the bread of God, the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. And so communion, it nourishes us in the heart of salvation, the forgiveness of sins. We literally taste and we see the Lord is good. God has been faithful. He's fulfilled his promises. He's forgiven us uh, and he's with us. And through communion, we grow in our experience of grace. We're nourished, but we also get the decadence of taste as well. We taste Christ himself. 
We experience him. We abide with him. We participate in his death. And his spirit meets us and communes with us. And his spirit lifts us up into his presence because our sins no longer separate us from him. So we dwell with the ascended Lord. We commune with the God who has dealt with our sins. We commune with the God who simply wants to be with us. We commune with the one who promises that he will return. He will establish his kingdom. See, when we taste communion, it's decadent because it's for our enjoyment as well as our nourishment. We get to enjoy the presence of the Lord. And we might not have a conscious experience of this every time we celebrate communion. I get that. Leonard Vanderzee puts it this way. The wonderful thing about the Lord's Supper is that its benefits does not depend upon my feelings at the time. Let that sink into your head. Its benefits does not depend on my feelings at the time, but on the Lord's promise of his personal presence made known in the bread and wine. Finally, the last point I want to make is proclamation. By participating in communion, we proclaim God's goodness to all. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in celebrating communion, we're proclaiming Jesus' death. We're making the gospel known. And while communion in the Anglican tradition is for baptized believers, it's not an exclusive practice. It's proclamation, which means it's fundamentally invitation. And that's why our liturgy is so detailed about what's taking place. Yes, it's for our sake and our understanding and our worship, but it's also for the sake of everyone. So every person can understand why Jesus' body was broken, why his blood was shed, so that they can understand what we're doing and what we're proclaiming in this act. And that this was done for all, any and every person who would be willing to receive it in faith. So when we celebrate communion, we're actually proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming free forgiveness. We're proclaiming boundless forgiveness. We proclaim the imminent presence of Jesus, that he is with us, and we proclaim the great hope of his return. Because that's what Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're not obsessed with death, we're obsessed with what Christ has done because it assures us that he will return and bring abundant eternal life. And so when we come forward and receive in faith, we're making this proclamation as a community as we're unified in the act of communion. By receiving what we proclaim, however, we're also nourished for the sake of proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the world. This is why we pray after communion, send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to the praise of your glory. Amen. We participate in order to proclaim. Because Jesus, he's made himself sensible to us through our taste so that we might make him sensible to others. So that he can be sensible through us. So the big idea is this. When we taste what Jesus has done for us through the sacrament of communion, we see that the Lord is good. And by participating in communion, we proclaim his goodness to all. So come taste and see that the Lord is good.